Revelation 11, 7 through 18. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Thanks, Julia. Well, good morning. In the African-American church experience, when the preacher asks, can I get a witness? They're asking whether the community is seeing the movement of God that is happening in the community. For example, the Lord is blessing his people as we serve our brothers and sisters. Can I get a witness? The Lord is overcoming fear and doubt in the lives of our unsaved neighbors. Can I get a witness? There we go. The Lord is empowering his people to remain faithful to him in suffering. Can I get a witness? The question is a part of worship where community members encourage one another to testify about God's activity in the life of the community. As you know and have expressed, the proper response is amen or hallelujah or maybe both. So I expect you this morning to respond appropriately. Let's practice. The Lord has defeated sin and death by the blood of the Lamb. Can I get a witness? The Lamb has won for Himself a people from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. Ultimately, our lives tell the truth about us. We can't hide our fruit. We're always witnessing. And the central question for any human life is, who or what am I worshiping? Our lives bear witness. We testify to the truth. They bear witness to the world. If we're faithful, they bear witness to the world about our King, Jesus. So when the lamb asks, can I get a witness? The martyrs of the church can stand and say, amen, hallelujah, the lamb is my king. Justin Martyr 
one of the church's earliest philosophers and one of our great theologians was threatened with death if he didn't bow to Caesar, sacrifice to the Roman gods. He responded, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. Can I get a witness? The lamb had a witness. Justin told the truth about Jesus in his life all the way to death. That's why we call him Justin Martyr. Martyr is just the Greek word for witness. The martyrs of the church are those people whose lives look like the lamb. They bear witness to Jesus in the ways that they lived and spoke and suffered, and especially in the ways they died. Today we're looking at the seven trumpets of Revelation, from Revelation chapters 8 through 11. Central to this part of the book is a story about two witnesses. And we're going to spend most of our time there in chapter 11, the two witnesses. We'll look at what it means for us to win victories for the kingdom of God by living as witnesses to the Lamb. Let's begin in prayer. Holy God, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you for the chance to come and worship as your people today. And we thank you for the example that you put in your word of these two witnesses who bear witness to you in their life, their speech, their death, and their resurrection. Thank you that they witnessed to the Lamb who lived, spoke prophetically, and died for us, and you raised him from the dead, and he is now ruling as King. Jesus, we praise you as Lord and King. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and continue shaping us today by the Word of God. May it shape our hearts and change us so that we might be more faithful witnesses to Jesus the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So where, where are we in Revelation? That's actually a good question all the time. Um, where are we? We are in the trumpets, which is the second of the series of sevens. And I'll show you the slide again from last week. Um, these series of sevens structure the, this section of the book from chapters 6 through 16. The trumpets occur in chapters 8 and 9. And again, they're the second of the series. The first was the seals and God's redemption plan is unfolding. A quarter of the earth is destroyed. Uh, and the nations are asked the question, who can stand on the day of the Lord's wrath? The trumpets are the second of this series. These trumpets announce the invasion. God is invading earth with the purpose of at the end of the book, earth and heaven are united in the new heavens and the new earth. God will live in intimacy with us at the end. Uh, we'll also discuss the thunders today. The thunders are, it's like, if you can imagine with me, God invading the atmosphere and like the atmosphere is responding. So thunders are thundering. And I, I want to look two things. The nations, specifically in the, in the trumpets, the nations after the sixth trumpet, it says, and they did not repent. We'll look at that in a little bit. But the nations move from who can stand on the day of the Lord's wrath to I'm not going to repent. And the church is called to, to function and respond to that. And the church and the trumpets is looked at as the two witnesses. So we're going to talk about these two witnesses uh, today. The trumpets, the idea of trumpets should remind us of Jericho, uh, Jericho, Joshua chapter 6, where the army of Israel is invading the promised land and they are told to march around the city one time blowing trumpets, 
for six days. And then the seventh day, they march seven times around the city and blow the trumpets. And at the end of the thing, the walls fall down and God takes for himself Jericho. Same thing happening here. The armies of God are invading and they're tearing down walls as they go. We're going to look at the six, first six trumpets in about five minutes. So I apologize for that. There's a whole bunch more that we could say and that we just won't be able to this morning. Chapter eight, John describes for us the first four trumpets. And in these first four trumpets, the whole cosmos is being destroyed. In these trumpets, one third of all creation comes apart, including, and these are all listed, earth, trees, grass, sea, sea creatures, waters, and even the sun, moon, and stars. One third of each of them is destroyed. In other words, creation is coming apart. As God announces the invasion, creation is being decreated or disintegrating or coming apart. Chapter 9 tells about the fifth and sixth trumpets, which are these, these trumpets lead to absolutely terrifying night, nightmare scenarios. The fifth trumpet sounds and Satan goes into the pit of hell, opens hell. He's given the key. He opens hell and out come these nightmare demon locust scorpions. Like, can you imagine worse things than nightmare demon locust scorpions? And they're loosed upon the earth. They're told they can't kill anyone. So God continues in the midst of chaos. God continues to limit the destruction. But people beg for death. They would rather have death than these face these locust scorpions. The sixth trumpet unleashes an enormous army that kills one third of all humanity. Truly awful. An army from the east. And in the idea of both Israel and Rome... An army from the east is like the most terrifying thing. This is the worst case scenario. Armies from the east, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, came and wiped out Jerusalem and, you know, killed most of the people in Israel. Armies from the east were always the great fear of the Roman Empire. These are truly awful uh, events. Again, we haven't talked enough, but I want to draw a couple of conclusions about these uh, trumpets, what John is trying to tell us. First trumpets, God is announcing his victory. He has won. He is victorious. He is finally establishing his rule in ways that creation can see and recognize. And in response to God's victory, creation would rather undo itself than submit to God. Just like the people of Jericho, the nations here are being given an opportunity to repent and submit, but they choose not to. Rather than repent, the nations choose death and destruction. So that's the setup. So what is going to get the people to repent? What leads people to repentance? That's where we're headed. Chapter 10 begins with a mighty angel holding the scroll. You remember the scroll from chapter 5 and from chapter 6 through 8, where the scroll, the lamb has been unsealing the scroll, seven seals, the scroll is being unsealed. The scroll, of course, is God's final plan for redemption of creation. This is it. The redemption plan is opened. The angel's holding it. He's now standing on earth. And he comes down. God's purposes for creation are here. A loud voice 
thunders. God is on the move. Redemption is happening. It's all right now. Then the thunders thunder. Seven thunders, it says. Thunder. In other words, again, God is invading creation. It's all happening right here. And John prepares to write it down. And God tells him, seal it up. Don't write what you saw and what you heard when the thunders thundered. My suspicion is that God chose to have the thunder sealed up because they don't lead the nations to repent. There is no message for the nations from the thunders. These mighty works of God do not lead to repentance. So he seals it up. The angel with the scroll after the thunders says there is no more delay. God's purposes are happening right now. What are God's purposes? What's the next thing that happens? It's really strange. God says to John, go take the scroll. John, who's just, you know, a guy who's witnessing this thing. Go take the scroll. He takes the scroll and the angel tells him, eat the scroll. (laughs) It's a little strange. That's an image out of Ezekiel chapters two and three, where Ezekiel's told to eat the scroll. The scroll in Ezekiel is God's purposes being fulfilled. Here again, John is told to take the scroll. Here are God's purposes being fulfilled. Once he eats it, he's to prophesy out of what he's eaten. In other words, chapter 11, what we're about to look at is the prophecy that is the scroll. John is told to prophesy and then chapter 11 comes. What what happens when he prophesies This is the message that God has for the nations. The thunders, there's no message. Mighty power of God, and there's no message for the nations from that. Chapter 11, the two witnesses, this is God's message to the nations. This is how God is reshaping the hearts of the nations. This is how God is winning victories for his kingdom. So chapter 11, two witnesses, this is the heart of John's prophecy. It's the central point of the book. It's right at the heart of everything that John wants to say. The nations have refused to repent when they view God's glory and power. How will God win victories over evil? How will he bring himself glory? Chapter 11. Let me read for you verses 1 to 6 out of Revelation 11. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for that's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. The two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I hope that was as clear as nothing. Chapter 11 is one of the most complicated and dizzying mix of Old Testament imagery used in a New Testament way. It's, it's one of the most complicated passages in all of Scripture. Uh, one of the commentators that I was reading this week said, Revelation is like this really complex book. Chapter 11 is the most complex chapter of Revelation. So this may be the most complex, complicated, confusing chapter in all of Scripture. 
So, so take what I'm about to say with the, that grain of salt. There's a ton of disagreement about how to interpret chapter 11 of Revelation. Commentators are very confused, though most commentators are in agreement that what we're looking at is the church. So I just want to point that out. And if you have uh, uh, disagreements or things that confuse you, I invite you to continue reading. Again, uh, my guide is available at the back so I can indoctrinate you. It's also available on the Cole website. Um, But there are also lots of other good resources. The library has several resources couple I want to point you to, Daryl Johnson's great book on Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge, where he takes Revelation as a book on Christian discipleship. Gordon Fee has a helpful commentary called Revelation. N.T. Wright has a very accessible commentary called Revelation for Everyone that I highly recommend. Uh, And then Richard Bauckham's work, especially two books, The Climax of Prophecy and The Theology of the Book of Revelation. So I invite you to continue reading. Don't take my word for it but continue to read. Okay, let's dig in to chapter 11 though. John is told, measure the temple of God, which is a reference back to the end of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, where an angelic man in the last eight, nine chapters of the book, an angelic man comes and measures this vision of a temple that Ezekiel has. A temple, by the way, that has never been built. It has never existed. The end of Ezekiel's vision is really powerful. The end of chapter 48 of Ezekiel, the last verse, says that the newly rebuilt Jerusalem with this newly rebuilt temple is renamed, the Lord lives here. The vision of the temple in the Old Testament is this is the place where God's glory and presence live on earth. The temple is the place where God's glory lives. When Jesus came... He rejected the temple. He said, no, I am the place where God's presence and glory live on earth. And then when he left, of course, the spirit descends on the apostles and the gathered Christians. The New Testament is consistent with this. First Peter 2 says that we are living stones. The church, we are the living stones being built into a spiritual house for God. Ephesians 2 said that Jew and Gentile living together are being made into the temple, the house of God. The temple in the New Testament is the church. So when John is commanded to measure the temple here in Revelation 11, he doesn't measure a temple. Instead, he knows he's about to look at the church, the people of God. His measuring the temple will be his prophecy. The people of God are the contents of the scroll that the lamb has opened. So we, by God's grace and mercy, we are an important part of the way that God is fulfilling his purposes for creation. So the church as witnesses. So remember how in chapter five, the question, who is worthy? And John hears, lion of Judah, root of David. But when he looks, he sees the lamb standing as if slain. So the lamb is the lion. Chapter seven, we saw the same thing. He hears 144,000 from Israel, but when he turns to look, it's an uncountable multitude of, of, of worshiping army, worship warriors from every tribe and tongue and nation. We're going to see the same structure, more or less, here in chapter 11. John is told to prophesy. He hears, measure the temple, and then he also hears, here are my two witnesses. When he turns to look, 
he sees two olive trees and two lampstands, which is incredibly helpful. Thank you for that image, John. But the image that I want to get for you, the temple are the witnesses, is the witnesses, is the olive trees and the lampstand, and all of those are the church. Temple, witnesses, olive trees and lampstands are the church. So he hears, measure the temple, here are my two witnesses. But when he looks, he sees two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the Lord. The images of olive trees and lampstands refers to Zechariah chapter 4, where lampstands stand for the people of God and the olive trees, because olive trees, the olives are pressed out to make oil. The oil stands for the presence of God, that is his spirit. By the way, Zechariah 4, this reference, is the passage where God reveals it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That could be a thesis statement for chapter 11. It's not by mighty displays of works. It's not by power that God wins victories, but by the presence of his spirit with his people. That's how God wins victories. So again, the lampstands, the lampstands, by the way, if we remember back to chapters one through three, the lampstands are the church. They stand for the church. If you remember that, there's the, when the king shows up, when Jesus shows up, he's holding the lampstands. The lampstands are the church. So all of trees, lampstands, temple, all of this is the church. These witnesses are the church. And what do these witnesses do? Fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. They have the power to shut the sky. Those are both references, by the way, to Elijah, the prophet. He had the power to shut the sky and cause it to not rain. Also, if you remember in his showdown with Baal, he had the power to call forth fire from heaven that consumed the altar. Elijah, the church is a prophetic voice like Elijah. Also, these witnesses have the power to turn waters to blood and all kinds of plagues. Hopefully that reminds us of Moses in his showdown with Pharaoh. These witnesses have a prophetic role among the nations. They speak the truth about the kingdom of God and they stand against the empires of those who rebel against God. These witnesses speak against the nations just like Elijah spoke against Ahab and Jezebel, just like Moses spoke against Pharaoh, they stand against the powers of the world and they point out the lamb is going to come and judge and rule over the nations. The lives of these witnesses, not just their words, but also their lives, testify about Jesus. They look like Jesus in the ways that they live and then in the ways that they die, lie dead for three and a half days and then are raised again and ascend to the Father. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is victorious. And here, the witnesses, those who witness to Jesus, their lives, death, and resurrection are victorious in a similar way. Let's read again what, what Julia read for us, verses 7 to 13. They're so bugging the nations that the nations respond. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. 
Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the only moment in Revelation where the nations give glory to God. Can you imagine? All of this crazy stuff is happening. The seals are open and chaos is emerging and the thunders have thundered and the trumpets have sounded and the bowls are going to be sounded. This is the moment when the nations give glory to God. The only moment. The beast has triumphed. The beast we haven't met yet. We're going to meet next week when Marianne uh, teaches on chapters 12 to 15 for us. The beast triumphs, kills the witnesses, leaves them in the street for three and a half days. Three and a half, by the way, half of seven. Every number is symbolic. We also saw this at the beginning of the chapter. 42 months is three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. Everything is symbolic. Three and a half, half of seven, means not a full time. Seven would be full. Half of seven is limited. The, li- the persecution and suffering of the church is limited. So they lie dead, but the Lord raises them to new life. And after their resurrection, the nations glorify God. It's not in powerful displays of God's power that the nations give him glory. But instead, when witnesses look like Jesus. When the church is ready to suffer and die and allow God to raise them from the dead, raise us from the dead, that the nations give glory to God. I want to read from uh, Richard Bauckham his comment on these witnesses. Again, the witnesses are the content of the scroll that was introduced in chapter 5. The content of the scroll is not that faithful Christians are to suffer martyrdom or that their martyrdom will be their victory. Those things were already clear in chapters 6 and 7. The new revelation in chapter 11 is that their faithful witness and death is to be instrumental in the conversion of the nations of the world. The witness's victory is not simply that their own salvation from a world doomed to judgment, as might appear from chapter 7, but the salvation of the nations. God's kingdom comes not simply by saving an elect people who acknowledge his rule from a rebellious world, over which his kingdom prevails merely by extinguishing the rebels. His kingdom comes as the sacrificial witness of the elect people who already acknowledge God's rule brings the rebellious nations also to acknowledge his rule. The people of God have been redeemed from all the nations in order to bear prophetic witness to all the nations. Do you hear what he's saying? We're not saved so that we might be saved. We're saved because our witness brings the nations to know and submit to Jesus. So then, if that's the case, 
How do we live as witnesses to the Lamb today? How do we participate with the Lamb in winning victories for the kingdom of God? I want to look at three ways that we do that. First, by our speech and prophetic witness to the nations. Second, by our faithfulness in suffering and death. And third, by entrusting our lives to God. First, we bear witness to the Lamb in our speech and in our prophetic witness to nations that they might submit to Jesus. We bear witness as we preach the word of God, as we speak it out with our words. The word of God has the power to remake and renew people's lives. So we are called to be people who faithfully share God's word with others. We should soak in God's word in such a way that when people come to us for encouragement or to repent and seeking grace, that it just leaks out of us. It should be a part of us in such a way that we share God's word when given the opportunity. The word of God has power. In addition to preaching the word, the two witnesses here also give prophetic word about and against the nations. They call God's creation to submit to him. The nations are in rebellion and God's people, the witnesses, we are the watchmen who let the nations know that their rebellion is going to lead them to death if they don't repent. Sometimes I hear in the church that we should be a place where we only share the gospel and we shouldn't talk about things that go on in the nations. My first response to that is, well, what do we think the gospel is? What is the gospel? Jesus' first announcement of the gospel, repent, the kingdom of God is here. The gospel is a political statement. It talks about the politics of the nations. Also, as emphasized here in chapter 11, we must not give up our role as prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke against Israel's kings and against the other nations because of their sin. Moses directly confronted Pharaoh. Daniel and his friends served foreign leaders, but also got themselves condemned to death and watched God save them. Several prophets got themselves killed by unrighteous rulers for speaking the truth to power. Jesus himself threatened the leadership of both Israel and Rome so much that they put him to death. And they, Rome eventually killed almost all the apostles and many other Christians because they recognized Christians are a threat to the nations. The church was made to function as a prophetic voice in the world, to live as Elijah did, speaking and standing up to leaders who claim to speak for God's people but instead speak lies while rebelling against the Lamb. The church is also called to live as Moses lived, staring down evil empires who enslave God's people and prevent them from fully worshiping the only true God. I think we especially need to act prophetically when the church, when the church is being tempted to compromise with the world. This is at the heart of the role of the prophets and at the heart of the book of Revelation. Revelation is saying, look, don't be tempted by Rome. Don't be tempted by the nations. You must stand against them and speak against them. Don't compromise with Caesar because the lamb is king. Follow the lamb. As witnesses, the church needs to continue submitting to the lamb and functioning as prophets of life. The nations are not submitted to the lamb. They will lead to death. 
The way of the lamb leads to life. Can I get a witness? Second, so first, by our speech, speaking out the word of God, we bear witness. Second, we bear witness in our suffering and death. When we look like Jesus, being faithful all the way to suffering and death, we bear witness to him. Too often we want to rely on big programs or the excellence of an event or the number of people who show up rather than in simple acts of faithfulness that God calls us to. I want to point out again, the seals, the trumpets, the thunders, mighty displays of God's power and the nations do not repent. They do not give glory to God. What is it that moves them toward glorifying God? Witnesses who look like Jesus in their lives and deaths. Revelation argues that faithfulness is more effective for the kingdom of God than mighty displays of power. Suffering wins more battles in the kingdom than shows of strength. One life that looks like Jesus is more powerful than a well-run program or an excellent time of worship or a perfect sermon or an emotional sharing time. We bear witness to the Lamb by our faithfulness all the way to death. We have more impact on creation by our faithfulness than when we win wars or vote the right people into office or run a big program. The martyrs of the church are winning battles for the kingdom through Christ's blood and by his power. Can I get a witness? So first, we're witnesses by speaking the word of God. Second, by bearing witness in our suffering and death. And third, when we trust ourselves to God and allow him to raise us from the dead, allow him to vindicate us. When we trust ourselves to him, we are indicating to the world we don't trust other stuff. It's God that we trust, not money, not the nations, not our retirement portfolios or the organizations that we're a part of. God vindicates his people. Our job is to live faithfully all the way to death, to seek grace and forgiveness for one another and then leave the results in his hands. They are more than capable. Our passage ends with the triumph of the Lamb. Let me read verses 14, 15, to 9, 15 to 18 that uh, Julia already read for us. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped him saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The seventh trumpet sounds and heaven celebrates God's victory and the kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Can I get a witness? The 24 elders, we praise you, Lord, because you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but you rule over them and you destroyed the destroyers of the earth. Can I get a witness? We'll be asked this question more directly later in the book in a few weeks, but sometimes I wonder about my own heart. Will I be cheering and singing celebration when the nations of the world are judged 
and the destroyers of the earth are destroyed? Or am I too caught up and compromised with the nations? Will I celebrate or will I mourn when America is judged? Will I celebrate or will I mourn when this way of life that I now enjoy is judged? Revelation encourages followers of the Lamb to reject compromise with the nations because we are a part of the Lamb's kingdom. We are witnesses to that kingdom, not the kingdom of the world. Next week when Marianne preaches on 12 to 15, we will see that creation still has its rebels. The dragon and the beast are still seducing people away from the Lamb, but the kingdom is already God's. He is already in charge of it. Handel's great hallelujah chorus comes from this passage. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The nations who are raging against him, they're defeated powers. They have no authority over us. We worship and follow a sovereign king. Can I get a witness? Our lives can bear witness that he is king. If we're looking for ways to win battles for the kingdom of God, to win as the army of the lamb that we talked about last week, then just know that you will win not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Our victories come as God's spirit enables and empowers us to speak the truth, to suffer faithfully, to die to ourselves, and to give ourselves away as martyrs, that is, as witnesses to Christ, just like our Lord, the Lamb. He's calling out to you and to me today. Who will share my word with others who need to hear about me? Who will stand up to the rebellious nations who speak lies about themselves and all creation? Who will faithfully claim me as king in the face of persecution and suffering and death? When faced with the temptation to compromise, will you trust me to raise you up, to offer you eternal life, to give you a crown of glory and to seat you with me in the new Jerusalem? The Lord is asking you today, can I get a witness? So how will you answer? Let's pray. Holy God, I want to be a witness to you. We want to bear witness to the goodness of your creation, to the amazing love that you showed when you sent your son to die on a cross for us. And for the amazing invitation that you continue to offer to us to be your people, to live in intimacy with you. I confess, Lord, I am compromised. My heart is drawn to the nations. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, continue to purify me, purify your church, purify us, so that we become more faithful witnesses to you. Would you continue to draw us to yourself, to make us new? And would you use us to prophetically bear witness to you as we go out this week? Use us for your purposes to bear witness to Jesus, the Lamb who is King. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.